You can turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings uh, chapter uh, chapter 2, and as you do, uh, just a reminder that our children's ministry uh, coordinator has some sermon notes and helps near the front of the lobby in some red folders. So if you have uh, children or even young youth that would benefit from that, I invite you to utilize those helps. Uh, This morning we're taking a break from uh, Matthew. We're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 2 in its entirety. Uh, But we're going to look at it backwards. Uh, I see some visitors here this morning. I'm so sorry. Uh, There is a story at the end of 2 Kings chapter 2 uh, that might be disturbing to some. uh, But if we believe that all Scripture really is inspired by God and His Spirit, then we, we can't just avoid texts like this. We have, to, we have to wrestle with them, and we have to see what God is, is teaching us through them. Just a few things to keep in mind as we, we shift from Matthew to Kings. It's uh, quite a different book, quite a different style. Uh, these two books of Kings, First and Second Kings, are actually one book, and as I'm sure you could guess, they tell the story of kings, the kings of Israel. Uh, You start with, really, Saul, who uh, was not the best king. He started off well, but he later did what he wanted to do, and that never turns out well for God's leaders. You follow that with uh, David, easily the best king that Israel has ever seen. But after David, things go downhill. You know David's son, Solomon, who, yes, was, was wise, but not wise enough to continue obeying God. Because he disobeyed so consistently, so continually, that God said, I'm going to take the one kingdom of Israel and I'm going to tear it in two. You're now going to have a kingdom to the north, which we're going to call Israel, and a kingdom to the south, we're going to call Judah. And so the story of kings and chronicles outlines these two kingdoms. We follow the kings of the north, the kings of the south, and we switch back and forth constantly. Uh, but what we see is continual failing. What we see is these human kings not actually following God's word, not actually doing what God commands them to do. And as you would expect, bad things happen. But where human kings fail, God sends his prophets. And through his prophets, God would redeem his people. Prophets like Samuel, prophets like Nathan, and as we'll see this morning, Elijah and Elisha. Second Kings chapter 2 marks the official end of Elijah's prophetic career and begins that of Elisha's. So we start with a, a story that might be disturbing to some. We're going to move backwards to the beginning of the chapter and we will see how God is present through all of it. We will see God's grace. So join me as we read just three verses starting in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23, hear now God's word for his people. He, Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. 
From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. That is what we depend on. Uh, Before we begin, special thanks to Rob for assigning me this passage and then leaving. Thank you. Don't, Don't blame him one bit. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage the, the last few weeks, um, because this isn't the kind of passage you prepare in one week, um, I, I was thinking about how things aren't always what they seem. There are a lot of opinions about this passage, lots of trying to explain it away, lots of what we call exegetical gymnastics. I mean, it's, it's impressive what some people do with this passage. Uh, but because I'm a nerd... Uh, I I remembered a famous quote by a first century Greek philosopher and historian named Plutarch, because that's what I read in my spare time. And uh, he said, famously, you should abstain from beans. Now, if I gave you all a piece of paper and asked you to write what you think that means, we might get very different answers, right? But you would all focus on the beans, what are the beans? Why is he talking about beans? Is it lima beans, chili beans? What, what is he talking about? Why is he talking about diet? Why is a philosopher and historian talking about food? Until you do a little bit of study. Not everything is as it seems, right? And what you'll find is that in Plutarch's time, the Greeks had a habit of using dried beans to cast their ballots in elections. That's how they would vote. So Plutarch isn't getting into the diet business. He's actually talking about politics. Abstain from voting. What he was saying was the government's so corrupt, there's no point in voting. Abstain from beans. So when I say to you, God is gracious. When I say to you, behold the grace of God, you have a picture in your mind. You might have a picture of Jesus dressed in shepherd's clothing, tending gently to his sheep. You might have a picture of Jesus sitting on a rock and inviting the children to sit on his lap and hear stories. You might have this picture of Jesus and of the grace of God. But we must also remember that the grace of God can manifest itself in different ways. Grace is not always what it seems, but it is a grace that will never leave us. This morning we're going to look at God's gracious judgment. We're going to look at God's gracious healing. And finally, God's gracious presence. Now we come to this passage, a passage I don't believe any of you have framed in your homes. And at first glance, it looks like God is harming 42 boys because they called his prophet bald. That seems like a volatile God. That seems like an unfair God. Why are we gathering week after week to worship this kind of God? What we're going to do is not attempt to explain it away. What happened, happened. But let's understand what actually happened. Let's look. We're going to look at three things really quick. Your first objection might be, these are just kids, and they're just kids being kids. Why Why is this happening? Well, yes and no. Again, commentators use exegetical gymnastics to explain that these are adult men, or, you know, these are, these are boys. There is, there is a word for men, There is a word for young men, and there is a word for young children. That's what this is. You wouldn't be far off imagining 10 to 12-year-old boys. So that's there. 
But what did they actually do? They see Elisha walking outside the city walls in verse 23. Far away from them in verse 23. He's not bothering them in the slightest, right? But look at verse 23 and what it tells us. They don't just uh, yell at him from afar, right? They actually, in verse 23, they, have, uh, they come out of the city to jeer at him. So this is the picture you have to imagine. Elisha's walking up outside the city walls all by himself, minding his own business. He's got a mission. He's, he knows where he's going. Then there's a large city wall that you would not be able to climb because a wall you're able to climb is not much of a wall, right? It's not going to play defense very well. So imagine a 10 to 12 foot wall and these boys somehow see him. They recognize who he is and they go out to him but they don't just yell. They have to go to the city gates where the guard is. They have to get permission from the guard to leave the gate. And then they go. And now when you hear about bears attacking boys, you might be thinking five boys, 10 boys, 42 boys at least. It says in verse 24, the bears tore 42 of them. 42 by itself is a small army. For the author to write 42 of them automatically implies there were at least more. And they probably didn't have good intentions. So, you know, I'm not the largest man in the world. I could probably take a few 12-year-olds. I could probably hold my own. 42? Not so sure. I'm not so sure what I would do. So you have 42 boys coming to attack a prophet of God, that's a small army. Now, your next objection might be, well, what did they really do? All it says is that they called him bald. You would think a prophet of God would have thicker skin than that, right? Let's, let's again, study what, we're not explaining this away, but let's actually study what they said. What we have to understand is that in that culture, prophets would often shave their heads as part of their calling. You would know a prophet by his shaved head one of the things that was part of his anointing. And so by the shaved head and by identifying him by his shaved head, they know they, may, they might not even know who he is. They might not even know it's Elisha specifically. All they know is that's a prophet of God. And in saying go up, they're not just saying, oh yeah, that's the way. They're saying, get out of here. Keep on walking. The Keep going. Because we're doing our own thing. We know what you're all about. You're all about God and prophesying and all that stuff. We're just going to go ahead and mind our own business. You do your thing, we'll do our thing. Get out of here. Maybe a 21st second American translation would go something like, yeah, keep on walking, Baldy. We don't want any of that prophesying around here. And in saying that, what they're really saying is we don't want God here. You see, they're not so much insulting Elisha as insulting what he does. And what he does is communicate God's word. And they're saying, we don't want any of that. Keep that away from us. So we don't know if Elisha felt threatened. We don't know if they had weapons. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. What we know is that a small army came out of the city towards Elisha and said, keep on moving. 
And the response, your, ne- your last objection might be, well, did the punishment have to be so severe? I mean, I've seen criminals do far worse than this, and they're walking around freely. Well, again, if you look at verse 24, all that Elisha did was turn around and curse them in the name of the Lord. The Lord was the one who then sent the consequence. It was God who then sent the bears. So if God thought Elisha was overreacting, if God thought Elisha was being a little too sensitive or overdramatic, he could have corrected the situation. We don't know if there was a threat. We don't, there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is God sent this judgment, not Elisha. And I think the lesson here is that God takes his word very seriously. Elisha represents God's word. This small army was attacking the personification of God's word. And any threat to that is met with judgment. But that word judgment, we have to remember why these judgments are recorded in Scripture. Um, I recently learned that over on the other coast of Florida, um, there were a string of robberies. Um, And during the worst months of COVID, what happened was a small group of criminals would go around to church mailboxes and they would steal the offering checks. They stole over $700,000 before they were caught. Yeah. Um, And one of the pastors over there that I know was asked to interview and answer this question. What would you say to these criminals if you had a chance to speak to them and you knew that they were listening? Now, I know this man. I expected something a little rough around the edges, something like, if I ever see you. Um, But his response uh, amazed me, and I actually... I loved it. Uh, He said something to the effect of, I would tell them that I hope they understand the grace that they are being shown right now. This justice they're receiving now is but a foretaste of the judgment that awaits them if they do not repent. So how gracious of God to not let them continue, but instead to give them a small taste of what awaits them their con- the, of what is the consequences of their actions and attitudes if they do not repent. That's the grace of God in judgment. He judges so that repentance might come from it. And sometimes he judges some as an example so that others might repent. That's what Peter tells us in his second epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, we read, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? By turning them to ashes, he condemned them to extinction. But he also made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Events like this, examples like this in Scripture, are there for a reason. We don't have to smile at it. We don't have to cheer at it. But they are there. They're a consequence of what will happen. When you see someone pulled up, when you see a cop pulling someone over on the side of the road, it's an example of, of what you should not be doing. And most of us usually tap on the brakes a little bit when we see that happening, right? That's at least in part the point of this. We need to tap on the brakes if we are living in wickedness, if we are living in sin, if we are living as if we are the, the, the captains of our own ship. 
the rulers of our own destiny. God would be perfectly, con- perfectly fair in condemning every single one of us. That's, that's what we read in the gospel. That is the truth. But alongside that truth comes another. And that truth is that God didn't just leave us to our own devices. God didn't just make it possible to save us. God sent his son so that he could do all the things we could not do. So that all the things that our, our sins deserve would be paid for in full by his son, the only one who could do something like that. The good news of the gospel is that God didn't just stop being just, but in his judgment, he showed us grace. He didn't just leave examples like this so that we would be warned. Because what happens if you're just warned? What happens if scripture is just a warning? It's still up to you. Right? If I tell you, hey, be careful, something's going to happen, it's up to you to heed the warning. That's not the gospel. He didn't just stop being just and decide that our sins aren't that bad after all. In perfect justice and in perfect grace, the judgment that we deserved was placed on Jesus so that now we are forgiven and we can have true life. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. Not only do we need to accept God's grace and judgment, it's at the very core of the gospel. But you know, we don't, we can't, we can't stop at forgiveness as if the gospel is only that our sins are forgiven. We move on to healing. If God simply warned you not to break your arm, that's not much of a gospel. And then if you broke your arm after God told you not to, but then he forgave you, you still have a problem. You still have a broken arm, as I'm hearing some of you saying. Yes. So the gospel is more than just gracious judgment. It is also gracious healing. Let's look now at God's gracious healing. As promised, let's move backwards. Uh, In verse 19 of our passage, right before this account of the bears, we read this. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Elisha said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. If you actually look at the previous verse, if you have your Bibles open, or you can see it on the screen in verse 18, you'll see that Elisha is now at Jericho. Why is that important? Well, if I said uh, Eugene, if I said Eugene went to Hiroshima, you wouldn't just say, oh, that's, I know where that is. You would remember all the things that happened in Hiroshima, namely the atomic bombs right around 80 years ago. Likewise, when you hear Jericho, you don't just think, oh, I've heard of that before. You think of all the things that have happened in Jericho. You think of God commanding his people to walk around Jericho, to shout, and with the power of their voices, tear down the walls. But you might also remember Joshua chapter 6. This is why this is, why this is important. Joshua chapter 6, we see that Joshua, cursed before the Lord, says, cursed before the Lord, be the man. 
who rises up and rebuilds the city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up his gates. What we see later in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 16, is that God keeps his promise. I told you before of the two kingdoms. The north kingdom called Israel most often is by far the, the worst off of the kingdoms. They have the worst kings. And the worst of the worst is this king Ahab. During his days, we read this. In Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates but with the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is what Israel has in their minds when they hear the word Jericho. They hear this condemned place, this place of God's cursing, this place that will never receive God's blessing. But look what God does in our verses this morning, verse 21 and 22. Elisha went to the spring of water at Jericho, and he threw salt in it. Don't get distracted by the salt. It's just he could have thrown sand or pixie sticks, you know, whatever. He could have thrown whatever. The important thing is what happens next. He said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day. With the same word that God created the heavens and the earth, with the same voice that God pronounced a judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah, against Jericho, and against other cities, God also heals. There is gracious healing that comes to this place. The water that used to bring death now brings life. God didn't just say, I forgive you. He says, I heal you. That's what we need. We need forgiveness, but we also need healing. And we who are united to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, have had the same thing happen to us. Our, our, our words that used to be exclusively unkind and hurtful, our tongues that only brought death, now bring life. We are enabled to speak gently and humbly towards not just those people we like, but everyone. We, don't just, we aren't just told a soft answer turns away wrath, we are enabled to do that even when we are angry or hurt. That's the healing power of God's grace. We used to only be a drain on our relationships because we're always looking out for number one. We're always looking out for our needs. But what are we told in the gospel? We are told that in Christ, all our, need, our needs are met. We're told even before Christ took on flesh in Psalm 23, that our cup is filled to overflowing. And so what can we do rather than be a drain, rather than bring death to our relationships? We can bring life. We can give and give and give and give because our cup is filled to overflowing. If your sin could be represented by a broken arm, we aren't just told not to get a broken arm. We aren't just forgiven for breaking our arm. The bone is set, the cast is placed, and now you can write. You can pick up your children. You can throw a ball. You can do all the things that your arm was created to do. 
Likewise, Christian, with a healed heart, you can do all the things that God has commanded you to do in Christ Jesus. Amen. That is the grace of God. But if you can believe it, there is even more. The gospel is even better than that. The gospel includes Jesus enduring the judgment that we should have endured. The gospel includes not just being forgiven, but also being healed, restored. But if you can believe it, it's even more than that. The gospel also includes God's gracious presence. He will not leave us. We come now to the beginning of our passage, the beginning of the, pa- of the chapter that we've worked backwards from. And here's the conversation that we get to eavesdrop on. Verses 1 and 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha says, As the Lord lives, I will not leave you. As you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. This identical conversation, if you have your Bibles, keeps happening three times in three different locations. Elijah says, I need to go this far. You sure you want to come with me? Yes, absolutely. I will not leave you. When Elisha says to Elijah, I will not leave you, you should hear God Almighty saying the same to you. That's part of the reason that this is in Scripture. Just as God's judgment is there as an example for us of what not to do, Elisha's words here, Elisha's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to his people is there as a reminder that he will always be here for us. But there's more. He doesn't just extend his grace to Elijah through Elisha. He extends it to all of us. We're going to read now our longest passage of the morning. Five verses, starting in verse 8. Here's what happened. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water. An amazing thing happened. The water was parted to one side and to the other. Should remind you of Moses and Joshua. Until the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, we get this conversation. Elijah says to Elisha, Ask me what I shall do for you before I'm taken. Elisha seemingly doesn't hesitate. Okay, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing, but it'll happen as long as you see me being taken from you. But if you don't, then it won't. That's the translation there. Finally, as they went on and talked, behold, we get an even more amazing story than the parting of water. We get this. Chariots of fire and horses of fire separated Elijah from Elisha. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven, and we don't see him anymore. So Elisha saw it, cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. Here's the summary. Elijah parts the waters, just like God did with Moses and Joshua. His follower Elisha asked him, Give me a double portion of your spirit, by which he means... All the things that you've been enabled to do, I want to be able to do them, but twice as much. I want to serve God's people twice as much as you did. Elijah basically says, okay, 
Then Elijah's taken up in a whirlwind. Imagine for a moment you are Elisha. Imagine for a moment you are one of the observers, one of the sons of the prophets. You're thinking God's man, God's prophet is gone. What now? What is going to happen? But God says, God tells them through a story, God tells them through a story, I will not leave you. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Elisha took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him. He struck the water and he asked the question, the question, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? That's the question. That's the question for all of us and from all of us. Even if we don't use those exact same words, we ask that question constantly. We look at the way our country is so divided on seemingly every issue. And we wonder, why can't we get along? Why can't they see the truth? Why, can't, why are they so naive? Why are they so pig-headed? And what we're really asking is, where are you, God? We look at our marriages that are seemingly one conflict after another. We seem to be always fighting. Why can't they just understand my position? Why can't we just have a week or a month where we have good times? And what we're really asking is, where are you, God? We look at the way that we are mistreated at our jobs or among our friends, and we wonder, what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? And what we're really asking is, where are you, God? Here's how God answered Elisha. From there, we'll move on to how God answers this question for all his people. In verse 14, let me read you the entirety of verse 14 now. Elisha took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, and he said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? God answers him not with a voice, but with an action. And he says, when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. That might not strike you as amazing, but God is communicating through that action. Elisha, I will not leave you. My people, I will not leave you. Elijah may be gone. I will not leave you. Elisha may be gone. I will not leave you. Moses, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, they might be gone, but I will not leave you. Jesus Christ may no longer be here on this earth physically, but he says, I will not leave you. Now, I'd love to tell you, I would love to tell you, that whenever you're feeling alone or even abandoned by God, all you have to do is pick up a shirt, roll it up, and hit the water, and you'll know that God is there. I would love to tell you that. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I often fall into this trap of thinking that the Old Testament saints had it easier. You ever think that? Adam and Eve saw God. God, the Israelites, saw Moses part the water. I'd love to think that if I saw someone part the waters at Stewart Beach, I might follow God more seriously. If Pastor Rob was taken up in a whirlwind, I might obey God more closely. 
But look at Jesus' own words in John chapter 16. Jesus says to you and to me, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus, the Son of God, told us that it is better for him to leave so that we could have the Spirit, so that we could have the very presence of God in a way that Old Testament saints could have only dreamed. Elisha asked for a portion of Elijah's Spirit. We have the very Spirit of God. In Christ, we have His Spirit. We haven't just been told that we have a broken arm. We haven't just been forgiven for getting a broken arm. The gospel doesn't even stop at having our broken arm healed. We also have a doctor with us 24-7 who is healing us day by day, who is encouraging us, who is strengthening us, who is giving us every ability to do all the things that we need to do with our arm that is now healed. And more than that, we have a community of people to show us what it is that we need to be doing and encouraging one another. That is the gospel, my friends. It is more than just forgiveness of sins. It is this entire package of forgiveness and healing and restoration and community. It is living out the gospel together. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that no matter what we might go through, no matter what we might observe in the lives of others, we can be confident that you are with us, that we have your gracious presence. And if we have you, if we have your spirit, there is nothing else we need. Thank you for that assurance, Lord. As we leave this place, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would help us to really believe and live in light of the fact that we do have everything we need in Christ. That we would seek to be a blessing to others with, with all the blessings that you've given us. And that we would daily, daily recognize our need for a Redeemer and be, be grateful and rejoice in the fact that there is a Redeemer in Jesus, God's own Son. Thank you, God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.